0: This podcast is brought to you by Jameson's. Not actually brought to you by Jameson's. Welcome to Drunk at Noon with your host, Barry Underwood. For this episode, I brought in Brad Sissons from Divine Winery, and he's going to teach us about gin. (laughs) Just so you guys know, I actually recorded this intro before and for some reason I said wine instead of gin. So this is in fact my 8th attempt at this. Uh, Anyways, back to the show. For those of you that haven't been to Divine, I highly recommend you do so because they single-handedly revived my love for gin. Beautiful estate, amazing staff, and they'll get you drunk. They'll get you drunk, guys. Um, As always, music is by Marlon Keenan. I'll be leaving links in the description for all of his sweet 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 jams and yeah let's get to it episode two with brad sissons labeled time to be divine i hope you guys enjoy
1: So my name is Brad Sissons, I am the brand ambassador for Divine Distillery and Winery. We're out on Old West Sandwich Road, sixty-one eighty-one B, and yeah, we have been in the
0: distilling for almost five years now. Well, welcome to the the show. This is the um, Drunk at Noon podcast.
1: Yeah, amazing. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I wanted you on specifically because I got to say the like you single handedly turned me into a gin lover. Amazing, yeah. Something that I I didn't necessarily care for, um, a long time. And as always, you may hear some dog in the background. This is Phoebe. Hi, Phoebe. She's the resident mascot on the show.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little ball of joy. But yeah. Um, and how that started was I'm, I I, uh, I went on a tour to Divine Winery, mm-hmm. uh, with a couple friends of mine, and yeah, you were you were basically our tour guide. And you gave us the whole rundown on the history of mainly the wines. And then we ended up dipping into the gins. And uh, I believe it was the ancient grains at the time.
1: Yeah, I feel like the first time I think you guys were up, it was kind of fairly early on in the infancy of our distilling Mm -hmm. program, um, which definitely was focused uh, initially on gin, um, we did have the honey shine, Amber. Yeah. Our black bear spiced rum. And then I think the ancient grains was in concept. Yes. And I think we might've done like a barrel tasting. Cause yeah. I, uh,
0: Cause we had like some sort of, it was like a, s- almost like a sneak peek or something. Yeah. And it was very good.
1: Um, Oh, and I think we had a, I think the Moderna vermouth might've been at yes. that time as well. Cause that was right around the time Peacocks picked up, um, the Moderna vermouth. As yes. Well. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing I would say that was so interesting, especially over the last, you know, kind of four and a half, I guess almost five years now um, of the introduction of craft distilling is the very interesting component of seeing different sugar sources um, and also seeing different types of alcohol that we haven't had access to that have, may have been made globally for hundreds of years, but in North America, we... Didn't really gain any access to, or it was there, but it was on the bottom shelf at the liquor store, and yeah. really nobody knew what it was. Um, so that's always been for me definitely a point of passion, but also a very you know easy way to study something is the fact that you know seeing different types and styles of alcohol coming around and what we have access to, um, and then for when people come up to the tasting room, you know it was always the for me, very gratifying to have people come up and start to experience something that they've never tried before, mm-hmm. learning not only about the process and how it's made, um, but some of the historical impact or, you know, why it was being made the way that it was, um, which for me has always been, you know, the driving factor behind why I love the things that we make or um, have different approaches and styles.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. That was one of the most informative things on alcohol that I've ever encountered. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like you guys you guys do a really good um, history on gin, which is, yeah, uh, really why I wanted to bring you in today, because I want to talk about gin, because that's, uh, you know, Divine Winery and yourself really got me onto that spirit.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, our initial conversation um, back in the day, and, you know, for myself as well, yeah, I started working with Divine um uh, almost five years ago now, um, and taking on the role as brand ambassador and having the ability to work closely with our uh, production team being Ken Winchester and Kevin Titcomb, uh, and our farm manager, John Thomas. Um, you know, we got to really kind of delve into the different types and styles of alcohol. Um, we got to also approach it more from a sugar source component working under the umbrella of craft distilling where we have to use a sugar source from the province of bc Mm -hmm. to be under that and we must mash mill ferment and distill everything on site um so it gave us a lot of really good talking points but then we also got to then delve in and say okay well you know let's start with gin you know back in the infancy of craft distilling five years ago we saw so many different vodkas and gins and white whiskeys and you know a lot of things came out Mm -hmm. um and in that first i think year and a half we had 40 plus distilleries open and now five years in we have over 90 yeah um so we got to really see a wide variety of types and styles um but it was one thing that was very interesting at divine um to work with ken and kevin and talk about What were, you know, the original versions of or what was the driving factor behind the way things were made, which is where we first got started. You know, we made um, our very first two gins, which was Vin Gin and New Tom. Um, we then quickly on its heels started to make Yenever, yes, or Geneva, mm-hmm. depending
0: upon pronunciation what um, that's actually my personal favorite of the bunch
1: yeah, you know it's um for me it's got the historical relevance, the flavor profile, and the fact that it's made differently than um what we have seen you know in North America for the last kind of ninety to a hundred years yeah um and You know, if I was to just kind of start talking about the, you know, the way I always kind of define gin is to say that there's, you know, five major categories. I say there's kind of a sixth now, just in probably the last 10 to 15 years. Um, But, you know, we have Geneva, um, which is the traditional or original Dutch style gin Mm -hmm. um, made by the Dutch. And it was always, you know, what we had seen in North America. And if I even talk about gin like a train, yep. the, you know, being on the gin train, there's six cars on that gin train. But in North America, we were always just stuck on one mm-hmm. um, car on that train, which was uh, London dry gin. Yep. You know, we had access to Beefeater, Bombay, Gordons, Tanqueray, um, Boodles, you know, we had the traditional London dry style um, and we always drank it with usually oversweet tonic and yep. lime. Um, you know, my first introduction to gin was running around at the cottage at my grandmother's house and taking a swig off of this clear liquid (laughs) that I thought was water with ice and a lime in it. And Mm -hmm. it was her probably overtly strong bee (laughs) feeder, two to three ounces and Schweppes tonic with two squeezes of lime in it. And, you know, that's why also there was this big uh, demarcation between people that liked gin and didn't like gin. Yeah. Because it was so prominently juniper forward Mm -hmm. and it was a very specific flavor profile. And if you didn't like that kind of carnivorous juniper green note, there was a lot of people that were just like, no, I'm not a gin fan.
0: Yeah. That's how I was for years.
1: Right. And, you know, as soon as we all of a sudden started to see that it's not that you don't like gin, it's that you haven't found the right gin for you. Yes. Which for me was such an amazing talking point, you know, in our tasting room at, um, uh, up at Divine, um, you know, in the summertime we see between two and 300 people Mm -hmm. on a day, especially on the weekends and, you know, getting the chance to walk people through and, you know, someone would say, oh, I'm not a gin fan Mm -hmm. and go to the bar and make something for them and, you know, put it in front of them, have them try it. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, this is amazing well, Mm -hmm. uh, great, you just had gin. Yeah. And again, it is trying to gear something towards their palate. So, you know, to kind of get back to the idea of gin being a train, if you think about the other five cars that we didn't really have access to, or if we did have access to, it was super limited in its number of brands that we had access to. And, you know, if we saw the word Geneva on a bottle, we probably didn't even look at it because Mm -hmm. it wasn't a recognizable name. Yeah. Um, so to kind of define this, what I would say is the six different categories of gin is, um, the oldest being Yenever or Geneva being the Dutch style. Yeah. Within that category of Yenever, there is two types of gin called Old and Young. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's all about the preparation of it and, um, the percentage of malt barley Uh, or barley wine that can be added back into it. Um, The older or the old style has, you know, more earthiness and more uh, rich undertones. And then the young style is quite a bit brighter and lighter. Um, But still, Yenever is known for having more botanicals. Um, Then you have uh, old Tom gin. Mm -hmm. Uh, We made a version of it called new Tom. And the old Tom style was typically a barrel-aged version of gin. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, you have your London dry gin. You have slow gin, which is made with slow berries. Yes. Typically quite sweet and usually comes in around 30 or 32% alcohol. Um, and then now what we've kind of started to see is, um, you know, what I would call a um, contemporary gin. Mm-hmm. Or a New Western or American style gin, um, which is your more fruit and floral. Um, I've also sometimes called it a vodka drinker's gin, <laughs> <laughs> because anybody that was a fan of vodka but not a fan of um, London dry gin that was more juniper forward. What you started to see was that people were backing out the juniper, um, not putting as much juniper in and putting in the more fruit and florals. Yeah, um, a perfect example of that was Hendricks Gin, mm-hmm. you know, coming out of Scotland, but they basically backed out more of the juniper. There was still juniper and juniper has to be present. Yeah. But they put in cucumber and lavender and rosehip and rose petals. Um, and it created this light, bright style gin that all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, well, all of a sudden I like gin. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the last category of gin is Plymouth gin. Now, Plymouth gin is a regionally designated type of gin yeah. um, that has to be made in Plymouth, England. Okay. So we only see, I think, two types, and it's made by Haymans and then Plymouth itself. Yeah. Um, because, again, not a lot of them are going to just go and buy property and yeah. build a distillery in So Plymouth. it's like kind
0: of like, like bourbon and champagne. Exactly, right? It has, yeah. to
1: have a, it has to be made in a certain area to be able to be called yeah. that name. Yeah. Um, now, you know, to kind of further break down those six different types and styles. And, and again, it's, it's so amazing now to see the fact that gin in the last 20 years has exploded onto the scene because Mm -hmm. of the fact that people are able to find a type or a style that they like, or that is for them to try. Um, you know, I always say that a lot of alcohol or most alcohol, was originally created for medicinal reasons. Mm -hmm. If you delve into the history of where a lot of alcohol was created, um, it it was impacted through the idea of whether it was, you know, to extract medicinal properties from botanicals, herbs, and spices, um, whether it was through aromatization in vermouth or, um, you know, different kind of types and styles, but it was always created originally as a medicinal component. Um, and it was the Dutch East India Trading Company, mm-hmm. um, you know, which over 600 years ago, um, Bowles Distillery in, Ho- in Holland is the oldest distillery in the planet. Yeah. It was 1650, I think. Jesus. Um, so it's been around for you know, almost 500 years, 550 years if you look far enough back in the, in the history. Um, but they created gin because of the fact that the Dutch East India Trading Company was this massive company that spanned the entire world. They were traveling everywhere. Um, They were gaining access to herbs and spices and botanicals and learning the medicinal properties of chinchona bark and wormwood and, um, you know, gentian root and dittany of Crete and all of these different components. And then they were realizing that, you know, if you steep these things in alcohol, also derived from a lot of Chinese medicine, Mm -hmm. um, that this liquid would carry... um, Medicinal properties, and therefore, they, you know, at that time they called it Dutch courage
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because of the fact that they would give it to their soldiers and their sailors who were colonizing all over the world, um, and it was helping to keep them, you know, stave off uh, malaria and scurvy and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, God bless the Dutch for also calling it Yenever or Geneva, yeah, because if you directly translate the word Yenever or Geneva from um, dutch into english it means juniper mm-hmm. so that's where you know the other types and styles kind of derived from but it was during the colonization wars between britain and holland that um you know the dutch were drinking mass quantities of me and for health reasons <laughs> um but it also made the, you know, they weren't very good in battle yeah. um, because of the fact that they were wasted most of the time. Um, and, you know, they left their bottles lying around on the battlefield and the British were picking up these bottles. Yeah. And it was around the time of William <coughs> the Orange as well when he actually invaded England. Um, and he was a big consumer of unaver, And this all this kind of introduced into um, Britain at the time, but they didn't know... Number one, how to make yenever. And yenever is specified by the fact that it has to be made from malted barley. Yeah. It's the defining factor of the, sh- the sugar source and, and how it's made. And, you know, that yenever or, or the, the malted barley structure in the base is what really gives it that kind of malty texture, the mouthfeel, the viscosity. Um, and then it is also known for having a higher number of botanicals. Um, our Yunaver that we make in the old style has 20 different botanicals in it mm-hmm. and is made from organically grown barley that's malted as well here on the island. Um, and to be able to have, you know, a Vancouver Island sugar source that's malted here on the island. And then mashed, milled, fermented, and distilled. And then we also grow... Um, predominantly um most of our botanicals in a greenhouse out on the Sanish peninsula as well Mm -hmm. um and you know so we created that style of Yenever to be a replicant of the fairly traditional approach um and what ended up basically happening was you know this gin kind of or this Yenever got introduced into england um And they tried to make their own version, but they didn't know how to malt barley or didn't have access to malted barley. So they kind of made their own base alcohol, probably in a bathtub or something very rough. (laughs) Yeah. And the only thing they knew to put in it was juniper Mm -hmm. because that's what the word directly translated into. So they just took more juniper and kept throwing more juniper at it. And then whatever botanicals they kind of had lying around or whatever was locally available in the British regions. And you know, this was the earliest form of London dry gin. Mm-hmm. More pro- more predominantly juniper forward and then a less number of botanicals and then also maybe not as many of the medicinal botanicals. Yeah. Um, so this kind of birthed the very original version of London dry gin. Um, and it then kind of took off because, you know, all of the British people were being told that it was very medicinal. Yeah. Tasted quite medicinal. <laughs> However, it didn't have as much medicinal properties as uh, Yenever did, um, and this kind of systemically started to change through even British history, where all of a sudden, you know, there was this. You know, if we went back to, if you think kind of Charles Dickens, Dickensian London, Oliver Twist era yeah. of, of of England or Britain at the time, um, you know, there's this big gap between the royalty and the peasantry. Yeah. And, um, you know, the peasantry was doing all the work, the royalty was living uptown, they were driving carriages and, you know, owning businesses and, um, you know, going to school, being educated, reading and writing, Uh, and the peasantry most likely immigrating from other places or still being from England and, you know, weren't going to school, weren't getting educated and doing most of the grunt work. Um, Now, all of a sudden, this medicinal liquid comes around and they start to drink more of it. Yeah. And they started to become pretty unproductive because they were <laughs> getting again wasted on gin, yeah, um and all of a sudden the royalty's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on? We have these angry peasants that are drunk on gin. they yeah. are no healthier, and they're just becoming less and less productive, yeah, so the royalty basically makes a statement and says, "Okay, well, gin is outlawed." and the two major things or r- laws that you cannot um, break is that you cannot be seen making it, and you cannot be seen pouring it." And this systemically started to, you know, change the style of of gin or London dry gin kind of one more time in in the idea that, you know, as human beings if we're told not to do something, we're gonna try ten times harder to do it. Absolutely. And that's where all of a sudden, you know, the birth of bathtub gin came around. Because all of a sudden you're not allowed to be seen making it. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna set up a home still in your basement in a bathtub. Mm-hmm. And probably make some pretty rough gin. <laughs> um, but then they also needed a place to store it. Yeah. And back then they didn't have big metal tanks, you mm-hmm. know, but they did have readily available barrels. Yeah. Whatever barrels were lying around. You know, if you had turn casks, Madeira, port, sherry, beer, wine, whatever it was, yeah. you basically took your pretty rough bathtub gin you threw your gin into the barrel. You probably added some more botanicals to it and yeah. maybe a little bit of sweetener to off-balance the, the probably pretty rough, unfortunately, <laughs> methanols <laughs> Yeah, because they weren't probably taking cuts of their distillate. It was probably just a melange of everything into a barrel. And yeah. the barrels were actually quite helpful in that because they breathed. So they allowed some of these nastier... Um, types of alcohol like methanol instead of just the good core cuts of the ethanol that you want to be able to make your spirit from. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually why there was an old saying called going blind by gin. Yes. Um, uh, because people were drinking large amounts of gin and it probably had methanol traces still in it. Yeah. If you drank enough methanol, it'd make you go blind. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you're seeing all of these things because of gin pop up throughout history, and and this created a, a, another type of gin which was called Old Tom Cat Gin. Yep. Now we at uh, Divine uh, Distillery and Winery we created a type that we called New Tom. Yeah. Um, and I'll get to kind of both of those styles that we made after I kind of cover some yeah. of the history. I'm notes. pretty
0: sure New Tom. That that was my uh, my that was my first introduction to Divine. Yeah, yeah, I uh, believe it was because of Peacocks. We that was yep. I think that was the first bottle we brought in. It was. Yes, and um, yeah, that's, that was my introduction to what you guys were up to. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was, um, you know, we had made the Vin Gin and the wow. New Tom kind of as the first um, two types of things that we um, that we made. Yeah, um, And we kind of riffed off, uh, you know, again, <coughs> studying some of the history of where gin came from mm-hmm. kind of systemically drove us in the direction of where we wanted to go. Yeah. Um, but then we also got to play around with sugar source and that kind of thing, um, which I'll kind of go over each type and style and the flavor profiles, um, as a synopsis, um, uh, at the end. Um, but the new Tom or, or the old Tom, I should say the old Tomcat gin, you know, it, it, it became its own style, um, because gin almost then became underground or black market. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this, um, type of gin and the you know even the name itself old tomcat gin came around because you know some people in the back alleyways of london or or britain as a whole um wanted to make money off of it yeah and you know they weren't allowed to be seen making it and they weren't allowed to be seen pouring it so one of these guys had a black cat that used to sleep on his barrels mm-hmm. down in his distillery. <laughs> And he basically started to signal his friends that his gin was ready by putting the sign of a black cat on a barrel outside of his house. Nice. So you could walk walking home in the rain and, you know, you're thirsty on the way home from work and you'd be walking down one of the alleyways and your buddy Tom has, you know, the sign of a black cat yep. outside of his house. And what they also did as well was that you'd walk up to the door and you'd, you know, knock on the door. Yeah. And you would... Um, there'd be a little window and you'd put your shilling through the window and then there'd be a cup hanging off the wall and a little spout probably made from lead, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, but Tom would be inside and he would pour a shot of gin through the lead pipe from inside the house to outside into the alleyway, into the cup. You'd take your shot of gin and you'd keep on walking, Mm -hmm. but it was his way or their way of basically, um, not being seen to pour gin. So therefore, you know, they were bypassing the laws Because their, you know, gin was being made in a bathtub in the basement, so they weren't being seen to make it. Mm -hmm. And they weren't being seen to pour it, because they were pouring it through a pipe from inside the house to outside the house. So it was their way of basically skirting the authorities. And this basically created old Tomcat gin. And that style kind of, and the name itself even came from that sign that was used. Um, and they even started to build like either paper mache or metal cats in bars yep. where the tail would go in behind the bar or in behind a screen so that if the coppers were out floating around, um, the um, bartender could take money, go behind the screen, pour the shot of gin through the cat and it would go through <laughs> the tail and out the mouth. Yeah. And you could still be standing around having your drink and if the coppers came in, you know, they wouldn't see yeah, anyone pouring. they not on the wiser. So in technicality, they weren't breaking the law. Yeah. Um. So it was uh, a very interesting time in the history of gin where, you know, because of the laws and because of what was being stipulated to everybody, it almost created this new style of barrel-aged gin. Mm-hmm. Um... You know, gin at that point, then we also started to see the growth of um, immigration to North America. And all of a sudden, gin started to get shipped over there because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whiskey was getting shipped over, you know, Scotch, Scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey had both been around and rum, of course, rum much longer than whiskey. Yeah. Um, But those things are, were the things that were getting shipped over there. And then all of a sudden... Everybody in New York and Boston and Montreal and yeah. Quebec City, you know, they were all of a sudden sitting there pining after different types of alcohol.
0: <laughs> that was actually a pretty big plot point in Peaky Blinders.
1: Ah, uh, very much so. Yeah. When he started to create his own little distillery there mm-hmm. and, you know, the whole conversation of, ah, oh, it's too sweet. Yes. Oh, but the people in the United States or in North America, oh, they want sweeter. Yes. Gin. Um... Which is even true to this day, you know, when you look at a lot of the alcohols that are being made, <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of things are geared to the sweeter palates of North America instead of the more bitter palates of France, Spain, Portugal, and Italy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've even seen that kind of change and, and morph over the, you know, last couple of centuries. Um, you know slow gin itself if we're going to move on to kind of the next type as well slow gin kind of came around and and one thing i'll always say about most types of alcohol historically driven or or regionally driven is that different types of alcohol are made because of the things that we had in those regions yeah
0: i would imagine it's just a product of abundance
1: Exactly. When you have too much of something, what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Right. It's like why did the Russians make from uh, make vodka from potatoes because mm-hmm. um, they had a shitload of potatoes. Yeah. Um, you know why do the Croatians or the in the Yugoslav um, peninsula um, why did the Croatians make um, slivovitz? Mm-hmm. You know, Slivovits was made from plums, and why? Because plums grow in abundance in Croatia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so each area has its kind of impact to the type of alcohol that was made. Um, and sloe Gin was a birth of that component because Slow Berries, S L O E, um, a lot of people think it's S L O W and it's about a preparation style. <laughs> I mean yeah. The, the type of berry. Um, but berries are part of the plum family and part of the blackthorn family. Mm-hmm. Um, and they grew indigenously in England. Um, and they were actually utilized uh, um, originally as hedgerows. Um, cause they were growing naturally and people would, um, and then being that they're part of the blackthorn family, they have a two to three inch spike in and around where the berries grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, they would actually plant them as hedgerows instead of, um, building, having to build fences mm-hmm. because the large spikes on them would keep the cattle in the certain areas. So not only did they utilize what was already there to assist them in their farming practices and other components, it also was growing berries for them. Mm-hmm. And so what they realized was that they had this pretty rough London dry style gin and every, you usually want to let slow berries hang a little longer. So you probably picked them in kind of late September, early October. Uh, once the sugars um, had a chance to concentrate a little bit more yep. by hanging on the, on the tree or the bush. Um, And the slow berries themselves, and they actually, part of, I think it was around, again, technically would be our Thanksgiving or around that time. um, They would send the kids out and it would be kids that would go do it because the kids (laughs) had small hands. So they could go into the bushes to pick the berries without getting cut up all over the place. yeah. Um, And what they would do is they would come back and they would poke each berry with a pin mm-hmm. because it would allow the juices and some of the sugar content to release out of the berry. And they would basically let the berries soak until almost Christmas. Yeah. Sometimes longer, um, but usually about eight eight weeks or so, a mm-hmm. um, couple of months anyways. Um, and you would basically um, add a bunch of sugar to it. And that's the very typical style. Most slow gins come between about 28 and 32% alcohol. Um they're quite sticky and sweet. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the day they would make a slogin fizz mm-hmm. um, or a riff off of a Harvey Wallbanger. Yeah. Um and you know, each one of those kind of had the presence of it. But um, you know, even just a kind of slow gin and tonic or slogin and soda, that kind of thing. Yeah. Was um a fairly traditional drink at that time. And um it slow gin itself kind of um hadn't changed and really hasn't changed throughout that process you know there's not a lot of people have used them or used it to make those uh, styles but um we had the very lucky opportunity um to have one of our grape growers out on the Saanich Peninsula um he brought us a branch and he thought it was juniper yeah and our master distiller Ken looked at it and he's like that's not juniper he's like that's berries he's like, Where did you find these? Because they're non indigenous, <laughs> they're non invasive, yeah. Um, so they would not have originally been growing here, yeah. Um, salal berries, which are part of the similar family, yeah, um, are indigenous here. Um, but we went and took a look at his property, and he had this hedgerow of probably close to 25 foot tall, slowberry Fuck. trees. And normally, you know, slowberry bushes, yeah, are not that big. Um, but he is one of the oldest farmsteads on the Sandwich Peninsula. His family has been there for over 120 years, I believe. Yeah, Like eight or nine generations. Yeah. Um, so someone in the early part of his family brought slow berry seeds with them as a lot (laughs) of immigrants did. Um, and planted it as part of their hedgerow as they would have done traditionally back home. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he's like, well, I never really knew what they were, so he used to just take a chainsaw and go in and lop the top of these trees <laughs> off every year, and it was just part of his hedgerow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he said, yeah, you know what, come on over, and you know, if you guys want to pick it, go ahead. Um, and so we did, and, you know, being able to kind of play around with those slowberries, and, and slowberries didn't see a lot of use outside of slow gin. You can make slowberry jam. It's quite tart. It's almost like... Yeah. A, if you were to think of mixing and matching strawberries, raspberries, and cranberries, they're kind of like tart, tang, and sweet. Yeah. So they've got a tannic quality to the skin and inside as a pit that's quite large, like a plum, which yeah. is why it's part of the plum family. Um, but we were kind of playing around with it and we really wanted to showcase um, the flavor profile of the slowberry itself. Um, so we make one of the only full strength slow gins uh, in the whole world. Yeah. Um, and we ended up basically soaking it in our vin gin, mm-hmm. um, for about eight weeks. Um, and really just basically letting the alcohol do the work. Yeah. Um, now we froze the slow berries, um, in a freezer just to kind of, yep. it basically just popped the skin. So we didn't have to poke each one. Yeah. Um, and then we took those frozen, um, uh, slow berries, let them thaw and then put them into, um, the vin gin and let them soak for about eight weeks. Um, so ours is a full 42% slow gin. Um, very delicious, it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's very fun. You know, the the thing that I always like about it is not only that it's a little bit of a different riff mm-hmm. um, on the traditional approach, is that you're not having to cut the sugars. You know, when you make yeah. a slow gin fizz and you have to add a ton of lemon juice and a, you know you really have to cut the, um, the preparation on it Mm -hmm. to kind of work through the sugar. Yeah. Whereas with ours, you can add as much or as little sugar as you like. Yeah. Um, You know, a slow gin and tonic is phenomenally tasty. Very delicious, yeah. Bright pink color um, with a little squeeze of lime is incredibly tasty. Yeah. Um, So it was really kind of fun, and it it kind of um, made our offering of all the different types of gin more prominent because the only thing that we don't make is Plymouth gin, because again, it's regionally designated. So yeah. we had made a London dry. We made an old Tomcat style. We made a Yenaver, and then we made a slow gin. Um, so it was really fun, especially when it came to, you know, as we were talking about before, your experience of coming up to our tasting room. Yeah. Is that we got to really kind of inform people about where gin came from. It wasn't just, Hey, we've got one type of contemporary gin. Yeah. That is this flavor profile. But then, other than your own backstory of the distillery, there's not a lot of the backstory of gin, unless you're going to delve into it. But being able to walk people through and have examples of it for them to try and the different flavor profiles. um, You know, we started to see people coming back every weekend, bringing friends. Yeah. because of the opportunity for people to be like, Hey, you're a big gin fan. You want to come and have an experience, you know, a- and to me in a tasting room, being able to engage somebody with an experience that's not only informative, but gives them some backstory and why and how, yeah. um, it really created a lot of brand loyalty and a lot of people were really, um, amazed at the fun information that they had never really known before. Yeah. Um, and we got to do that at farmer's markets and all of that kind of thing.
0: Um,
1: So, to kind of encapsulate all of the different types and styles, um, the first two gins, again, being the Vin Gin and the New Tom, Um, we also got the fun experience as a vineyard to start off by distilling from grapes. Yeah. Under the craft umbrella, we had to use the sugar source from the province of BC. Now, we're even more hyper aware of that because we're on agricultural land or ALR, and we have to... Um, or at least we had to use over fifty percent of what we grew on our property yep. in our spirits to be able to have a distillery on A.L.R. land. Yeah, so we basically said, okay, well then we have to, by definition, distill our uh, grapes or our wine um, into spirits. Yeah. Which is our driving factor (coughs) behind Vingin and New Tom. Both are distilled directly from grapes instead of grain. Mm -hmm. Um, Vingin, being a London Dry-in style, has 13 different um, botanicals. It has um, juniper. It has Sitka spruce tips from our property. It has um, uh, cardamom spice, star anise. It has uh, angelica, Um, a little bit of sarsaparilla. Um, it has uh, lemon and orange peel. Um, so it has, you know, almost a bit of a spicy center, but it was, you're more kind of juniper forward. Um, also being able to show people what a fruit distillate tastes like versus mm-hmm. a grain distillate. Yeah. Or corn ethanol. Um, it's really interesting for people to be able to kind of see and, 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 pick out through their palate um, the different flavor profiles. um, and then because we also wanted to have not only a barrel-aged product, but we also, you know, Ken's a big history buff. And as our master distiller, he's kind of like, hey, what about an old Tomcat style of gin or a barrel-aged version of gin? So we took the Vin Gin and we put it into small 29-liter uh, ex-bourbon barrels yep. uh, from Woodenville, Washington. Um and these 29 liter barrels, they're quite small, wow. um, but they impact quite quickly, which is really nice because um, we also were able to put a barrel aged product out within basically two and a half months, eight, Shit. Th- eight to 10 weeks, wow. basically. Um, and the thing of using a bourbon barrel as well is that typically old Tomcat gins are going to have some little bit of sweetness to them, mm-hmm. not only because of the barrel aging process, but back in the day, they would have balanced out some of the sharper notes with adding some kind of a sugar source, whether that was cane sugar or um, uh, honey or something like that. So we got the opportunity to use these smaller bourbon barrels and the sweetness from the whiskey barrels and the bourbon impacted the flavor profiles that we were looking for. So it gave us a kind of an, old Tomcat gin, but in our new Tomcat style. So we called it New Tom. And those were our very first two products that we kind of um, created. So New Tom was the exact same 13 botanicals, same distillate structure, uh, but just put into the whiskey barrels for about eight weeks. Nice. Um, And that was kind of what... Gave us our first two types and styles. Um, and then we made the Yanaver driven from the historical point. Um, and again, it was made from um, malted barley. So we would make the beer um, from the barley and then we would distill that twice. We would keep some of that second distillate and then we would do a third distillation with the botanicals. Yep. But we would add a little bit of that second distillate back in just to give it more texture and mouthfeel of that malted barley structure. Um, The Enavers hands down, one of my favorite flavor profiles. Um, And we also around that time um, started to make um, what you had alluded to before is our ancient grains whiskey. Yes. Um, Or ancient grains, grain spirit, I guess, is what we're allowed to technically call it because it's not aged for over three years. Um, But it's utilizing indigenous BC grains um, with a malted barley base and then emmer einkorn spelt and coruscant. And I remember when I first started tasting the ancient grains and it's handled like an American whiskey, so it goes into new oak uh, with a number three char for one year. And when we started to pull that whiskey out and I was tasting the whiskey and then I was also tasting or and making cocktails with it and that kind of thing. And, you know, in my mind, I automatically saw the marriage of both of these. Yeah. And a very traditional approach of... You know, if you were to go to Holland or to Amsterdam or anywhere, Belgium as well, um, you know, there's entire Yenever bars where there is probably three to four hundred different types. Wow. Because everybody and their mother made a different type or style of Yenever. Yeah. It was their local spirit. And, you know, that was um, one thing in my mind. I'm sitting there like, oh, barrel aged Yenever, barrel aged Yenever in my mind. So. Mm-hmm. I think probably at least once every two to three days, I was just in the distillery, and sometimes I'd just be walking through, and I would, you know, look at Kevin <laughs> or Ken, our two distillers, and I'd yeah. be like, "So, barrel aged neighbor. <laughs> Have you put any in ancient cranes barrels?" And for the first little bit, it was funny, and then finally, that yeah. thing I became slightly annoying to them and they, <laughs> they just roll their eyes and be like not yet no <laughs> no because we kept using or we were sustainably using our barrels yeah uh, our ancient grains barrels to age our honey shine amber and our black bear spiced rum so we didn't have a lot of extra barrels at the time mm-hmm. and then probably it was about four months ago so probably about a year and a half almost two years after i started to Annoy them. Yeah. Uh, daily. Um, <laughs> they, all of a sudden, I was walking through and I didn't say anything because I knew I was annoying them at the time and Kevin pulled me aside and he's like, hey, come here for a second. I was like, oh, sweet. I'm like, maybe a barrel taste of something. or Yeah. And he walked over into the corner and he goes into barrels and I'm like, this corner doesn't seem like it has any labels on it or anything. He just literally put mm-hmm. like some red tape on them. And he pulls a barrel sample and he's like yeah here you go i'm like oh it smells like gin (laughs) but it's got a darker color to it yeah but it also has like the caramel and slightly nutty notes of the ancient greens and i'm like you didn't (laughs) He goes, yes you annoyed the shit out of me long enough that without you knowing i have put two barrels aside fuck and so we made our basically i guess the fifth gin in our lineup um which we've now called dutch courage yes our latest release yeah um and you know god bless the fact that kevin was willing to test it and see what it was going to taste like but he was also very very happy with it and he's like you bastard you were right Mm -hmm. it tastes amazing (laughs) and Um, so as soon as we started to do some tasting profiles of it and see how long, we were about two months in the barrel. So we did not need a long aging time because they're only 50 liter. Yeah. Uh, new oak barrels that had seen ancient grains once for one year. Um, and you know, the, that type and style, which is one that, you know, seeing a barrel aged you anywhere in North America is pretty impossible to find. Yeah. Um, unless somebody's importing it direct from Holland. Um, I think there's only four you neighbors in all of North America. Shit. One in Quebec, us, one in San Francisco, and I believe one in New York. Wow. Um, so again, it's not something that's readily available, not something yeah. that's highly produced. Um, but for us, it's one that created a amazing following. Yes. Um, because of its ability to make, you know, such a wide component of cocktails. And mm-hmm. it had been so, you know, ingrained in the cocktail scene in Europe for so long. You know. Yeah. I make a, Yenever neighbor last word. I make a, um, who a Tim Siebert from, uh, what was Northern quarter. Um, he made uh, a maple old fashioned with it. Nice. Um, you can make sours with it. You can do such a wide variety of components and flavor profiles. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it hit a lot of people's palates in a lot of different ways. Um, and then the Dutch Courage was just kind of, you know, if you're a whiskey fan and you're a gin fan, it's the best of both worlds because yeah. you get all the brightness of the botanicals, but you get all of the richness of the caramel notes and, yeah. the, and the oak notes of the of the barrel aging
0: process. Was that the, um, you guys unveiled that a couple of months ago, yes?
1: Uh, yeah, we did the first release, I think, right before Christmas. Yes. So yeah, it was just kind of end of last year, kind of beginning, yeah. of, uh, beginning of this year, so yeah. Um, we've seen some, a lot of, uh, a lot of fun cocktails come from it. I know, um, um, Clayton at, uh, Win Mary has a phenomenal cocktail with it right now.
0: Yes. Um, uh, they, I, I just went to that, went there recently. That place is fantastic.
1: Oh yeah. You know, the chef David and, and Clayton and Soren on bar and their owner, uh, Jesse, um, they're doing some amazing food. Their fried chicken is badass. Yeah, it's
0: amazing. That's yeah. actually what I had These there. hot sauces. Oh, fabulous.
1: it's beautiful. Um, and I know, um, yeah, um, Clayton does a cocktail called the Righteous Gemstone with um, <laughs> the Dutch Courage, uh, and then I know um, Chili and Ellie and M at um, Bodega um, they've uh, created another one um, with the Dutch Courage that's incredibly tasty. Um, and they're actually the Bodega G and T as well as made with um, the Enaver. Yes. Gin. Um, and they do their own house-made tonic syrup. There. Very
0: delicious. Ugh, it's crushable. Um, yes, that's actually where I bumped into you today. Yeah, I was the, I was there to have a sneaky shaft before I caught my bus.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing <laughs> place to have a sneaky shaft. Yes, um, and the best happy hour, I always say.
0: Yes. Um.
1: So yeah, you know, uh, the best thing I would say about gin is that there's such a st- deep, long relationship with humankind for the last, you know. 600 years and the yeah fact that it's been not only medicinal yeah um, but has created a, a, an amazing array of flavor profiles and the fact that um you know when you really do delve into gin you can find one that you love you know you might find a couple that you don't like but there's always going to be different kind of styles and types. Yeah. and god now there's purple gins and pink gins and flavored gins and you know different styles and approaches um but it's a it's a bit of a rabbit hole because, you know it is if you were a gin collector, you could probably easily get over a thousand different bottles, oh yeah, <laughs> worldwide, and um you know each one's gonna have a different flavor profile and and um
0: fun things to talk about though for sure. yeah, I gotta say that's usually we generally have your the whole gin lineup, yeah but but we actually in our last move uh we ran through it all at a. A brunch we had, (laughs) Uh yeah, between just like uh, gin and tonics, and uh, had a couple of Caesars with them as well. So, yeah,
1: I do love a Yanaver
0: Caesar. Uh It's very good. I, um, yeah, that's actually like one of my go-to jams. I I don't generally drink a lot of Caesars, but I do love myself a gin Caesar.
1: Oh, yeah. If I am gonna have uh, a Caesar, it'll be a geezer. (laughs) Yes.
0: And um, another thing I wanted to touch up on as well is the your vermouth Mm -hmm. at. That was that was the other that was kind of like the the unsung hero of our tour. Um, a lot of us bought gin, but we're also we're equally blown away by your guys' selection of Vermouth and what you guys are doing with that.
1: Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> Vermouth,
0: if you had to asked me um,
1: three years ago that our moderna Vermouth would be one of our best selling products, I would have laughed. yeah Um, out loud yeah because um in our tasting room and, and you know again vermouth and and being a history buff myself you know studying and and looking up about you know as a booze enthusiast and reading and and delving into where things come from and why they were made you know vermouth has such an amazing story um both historically relevant and medicinally relevant um and you know as human beings and as families and and you know eating at home and eating with groups of people and when you think about the history of you know france spain portugal italy places that consume large quantities of vermouth um daily they do it because it's a digestive aid Mm and you know in North America, our drinking practices are so backwards Yeah, because it's been, number one, controlled. We're told that we shouldn't drink before 5 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So, therefore, we pack all of our alcohol into after 5 o'clock. Whereas, you know, apero or aperitif or mm-hmm. aperitif itself, the actual type of alcohol, you know, if you directly translate it, it means to open or to prepare. Yeah. And if you directly translate the word vermouth or Wermut from German, it means wormwood. hmm And when you get into the Italian bitter families of wormwood-based um, drinks, gen- chinroot, um, yep. or uh, chinchona bark, uh, like kina kinas, uh, fernettes, amaros, and then vermouths as well. And, and you know, vermouth as a whole, um, you know, we didn't even know that there was four categories of vermouth in, uh, as North Americans. We thought that there was dry vermouth and sweet vermouth, and we thought they had to go in cocktails. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas most other countries that either created vermouth or or, um, readily had vermouth available, um, they were drinking it for the right reasons, Mm -hmm. which was to drink it by itself before dinner to stimulate your digestion. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense why it was called an aperitif. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Wormwood um, itself, it... It's a um, a bark or a root or a, even a flowering bush as well, depending on what part of the plant you use. But um, it was used as far back as 600 BC yeah. by the Greeks, and it was purely used as a digestive aid. They would put it in their wine mm-hmm. to drink before they ate to basically help them digest their food. And that basically started to morph and change as, as Europe itself started to change. And it was in the Duchy of Savoy, um, which was basically northern France down to northern Italy. It was mm-hmm. from a region of Chambry in northern France to an area of Turin in northern Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the systemic styles of, of vermouth came. And that was kind of the driving factor behind a lot of where we started to make vermouth. And it's amazing now in British Columbia, we have, what, 12 different vermouths now? Yeah. Uh, made by about eight different producers. Um, but we approached vermouth from this st- uh, the number one historical relevance, because again, Ken, who absolutely loves to not only self-educate himself, but he also loves to approach what he makes from that style and from his reading. Yeah. And so he made Moderna vermouth, which is a very traditional Turin-style bittersweet vermouth. Yeah. And the four categories of vermouth being dry, bianco or white, uh, bittersweet, and sweet. Now in North America, we got dry vermouth and we got sweet vermouth, um, and we mishandled them. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Vermouth itself is a subcategory of... of fortified wines known as aromatized wines Mm -hmm. where you're basically taking a base wine, you're making it more aromatic by soaking botanicals, herbs, spices, and sometimes even fruit um, in it and then you're fortifying it with a neutral spirit Um, anywhere between 15 and 20% alcohol. And that was the one thing that the North Americans didn't really pay attention to, was the fact that it was only a little bit stronger than regular wine. Mm -hmm. Normal wines come between 9% alcohol and 15% alcohol. And if you have Mm. a bottle of wine open for more than three days, number one, you don't have the right friends. Mm -hmm. Number two, (laughs) um, you're going to probably toss it because it started to go off or taste bad. Yeah. Well, vermouth is only 15 to 20%, typically in and around this kind of 17 or 18%. So it's not that much stronger. Yeah. But we kept it on back bars and we put it in our cupboards and it was open for years. Yeah. Because we thought that we only needed to put a little bit into our cocktails. Mm hmm. Well,. And because we also thought it was making our cocktails taste funny. And it yeah. was because it had oxidized and started to go bad. Yeah. So we started using less and less and less and less. I,
0: re- I remember the first time I went to Divine, this portion of the history lesson, like everyone in our group was like, fuck, we are not treating our vermouth properly. No. Yeah.
1: You know, I got a t-shirt at home that says, if you're reading this, uh, if you're reading this shirt, put the vermouth in the fridge yes because you know and again it's why i even say to a lot of people whether it was at farmer's markets or back <coughs> when we first started making vermouth you know i'd say the word vermouth and people would take two steps back and be like you want me to try vermouth by itself yeah and i would say to them you know it's like 90 percent of most north americans have never had good vermouth and i don't mean that it's bad quality i mean that it's gone off yes You know, i remember the first time i stole a drink of alcohol from my grandparents liquor cabinet mm-hmm. it was out of a nice big tall bottle of martini rosa sweet <laughs> yeah. Vermouth. yeah and it tasted like a dirty gym bag like yep. it was disgusting um because my grandfather had one manhattan probably every two weeks and he used a, not even a quarter ounce of sweet vermouth in it so a 26 ounce bottle was going to take him forever to get through so it just kept getting nastier and nastier and nastier um and so that you know being able to impart that information to people and and just say you know these are the different categories of vermouth this is what fresh vermouth should taste like mm-hmm. and this is how you should use it yeah you know i remember when i first started selling our um, bittersweet vermouth or moderna um, and in a tasting room you know mm-hmm. you, you sometimes don't want to be you know too direct and saying hey you need to drink it this way yeah because i always say everybody can drink anything however they like absolutely and i first started approaching Moderna vermouth that way where i'd be like hey you know have a sip and see what you think but being that it's a bittersweet vermouth it's exactly that it is bitter up front it's got yeah. 31 different botanicals in it and has such a layering flavor profile to it um but for people that are not used to that flavor, and again, North American palates are geared towards sweet things, yep. typically. So being able to see the change in this uh, in and how people were taking it, and right off the bat they'd take one sip, they'd screw up their face, to be like, Oh, it's so bitter <laughs> and medicinal and yeah. I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, okay, how can I, you know, how can I get people to understand what this is meant to taste like and yeah. how to do that? And so I realized that also with the, you know, when I taste for the moderna Um, I'm having multiple sips, and the thing I love about it the most is that every time, every time you taste it, it changed. Yeah. So all kind of builds as you go. Exactly right, and 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 it even it breaks your tongue down into Mm -hmm. your kind of four major categories. Yeah. So I started to put it forth that way whenever I had somebody tasting it, and I would say, you know, I want you to sip this three times. And the first sip is going to light up the sides of your tongue and kind of dry your cheeks out a little bit because Mm -hmm. of your bitter receptors covering, you know, over 30% of your tongue. Um, But then, you know, that second sip in the center portion where your sweet receptor is, all of a sudden it would bloom with richness and sweetness.
0: Yeah. And I remember the
1: first time I did this and it was a, it was a couple. Um, and right off the hop, like I was literally forcing them to taste vermouth, <laughs> which I had to do for about the first six months. People would just be like, no, no, no. Yeah. I'd like, please just try it. I want you to try it this way. And, you know, and I'd walk them through the mm-hmm. three different tastes. And I remember because um, um, I even said at the end of it, I'm like, the more you drink it, the more you like it. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman, he was like, yes, you know, this is my flavor profile. You know, Absolutely. It's so cool the way that it kind of changed. Um. And his wife was like, ah, you know, I understand what you're saying, but it's still kind of not my flavor. I was yeah. like, hey, cool. I'm like, thank you so much for, like, just giving it a try Absolutely. And, and seeing what it's like. Um, and I remember, because he goes, oh, I'll take two bottles. And I was, like, you know, talking about, well, when you get home, you know, anytime you're cooking or beginning to cook dinner, pour yourself two to three ounces of the Moderna vermouth, you know, over ice, neat, however you like it. Uh, put a twist of orange and a green olive with it which is a very traditional Italian approach of a bittersweet vermouth. Um, And I still remember because it was one of those first interactions where he was like, yes, I found it, you know, and "And it's nice because I don't have to share it with my wife because she doesn't like it. Absolutely. So, um, you know, about kind of two or three weeks later, all of a sudden, um, she comes back up, the wife, and she goes oh, I'm here to get uh, two more bottles of uh, the bittersweet vermouth. And Beautiful. I like, Amazing. I'm like, you know, he must be really enjoying it. I'm like, you went through that really quick. And she kind of looks away sheepishly. Yeah. And I was like, why are, you, uh, <laughs> why, are you, why are you a little sheepish? She's like, well, he seemed to be enjoying it so much that when we were cooking dinner together, I kept stealing sips of it. And I guess mm-hmm. he finally looked at me, and, or he looked at her and said get your own fucking bottle. Yeah. And, you know, I started to laugh and she's like, well, exactly what you said. The more I drank it, the more my palate became accustomed to some mm-hmm. of the flavors that before I might have thought were a little stringent or strong. Yeah. She's like, you know, he was enjoying it so much and was like, hmm, oh yeah, this is so tasty. Uh, every time he, she'd go to steal his drink, she'd, he'd be like, get your own. Yeah, And so, yeah, now they buy, a, I think, a six pack of... Bittersweet for both every month, basically.
0: Good for them. And good for you, man. Like that's that's an awesome way to introduce it. Also, I lo- I that's one of my favorite things just about alcohol and drinking in general is that the jovial nature of drinking. You know, like yeah. with dinner, with friends. Of course. <laughs> like that's uh that's I don't know, that's kinda what I'm trying to spread here.
1: Well, and that's the thing is you know, alcohol. outside of north america is never deemed to be that bad of a thing no because there's a lot less restrictions on it people absolutely and it is part of exactly that you drink for the right reasons Mm -hmm. Um, and it's usually to help you eat food and hang out with friends yeah you know relax on a patio and enjoy something in the afternoon yeah um but yeah you know it was also the interesting component of where we also made our bianco vermouth our bianca i should say um, which is a white vermouth. Um, but we <coughs> went a little more on the fruit side of it and we soaked apricots. Um, yeah. Um, and chamomile and jasmine and cherry wood bark, uh, and a little bit of cinnamon or cassia bark. Um, and a little touch of black pepper. Nice. Um, and yeah, Bianca vermouth and tonic or Bianca vermouth and cava. Yeah. Um, or Prosecco, you know, as a, as a sparkling cocktail. I haven't
0: had that in Prosecco. That would be, I yeah. imagine that'd be fucking delicious.
1: It is, you know, with a little twist of lemon or, you know, it's, um, it's really incredible for people to be able especially in the summertime.
0: Yes. If you're
1: looking for a low ABV um, drink that you can just, you know, easily have one or two of in the afternoon. Um, not only does it help stimulate digestion, but it's also really flavorful and incredibly easy to drink. Yeah. Um, and you know, one thing I, especially at farmer's markets, um, you know, we were doing Moss Street Market and Esquimalt Market. You know, we were doing five to seven markets a week for the yeah. first couple of years. Um, and, you know, when you look at the digestive aid component of, Mod- of the Moderna Vermouth, mm-hmm. one thing I was talking to a lot of people about was how much it can stimulate your digestion. Yeah. And talking to anybody that deals with, you know, lactose intolerance. Uh, gluten sensitivity, celiac disease, uh, indigestion, Crohn's, heartburn, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the bitter botanicals and roots and things in the bittersweet vermouth, you know, if you drink two to three ounces, I'm not going to say it's going to cure you of any of these things, mm-hmm. but it will definitely make things easier for you because yeah. it's, you know, going into your stomach, it's stimulating digestion. You're putting food on top of it and then it's completely allowing you to digest easier. Yeah. Um, and I have now, you know, a bunch of people that have had, you know, digestive um, issues that start drinking, um, vermouth Mm -hmm. before they have dinner um and they're like oh my god you know it's not like you can go crush an entire pizza or anything like that (laughs) but you know if i want to eat some cheese or i want to do have you know a couple pieces of baguette or something um you know again it's not curing them but it's really
0: yeah some necessary foreplay
1: yeah exactly and it's the uh, amazing ability to
0: drink for the right reasons absolutely um you mentioned that in um with the creation of um, vermouth, you added a spirit. What spirit do you use for?
1: Um, so our fortifying spirit, um, we use, um, our honey based, uh, distillate. Okay. So we make a lineup of three different, um, honey based spirits. We make a honey shine, silver, mm-hmm. honey shine, amber, and a black bear spiced rum that mm-hmm. are all distilled directly from local honey. Okay. Uh, um, so yeah, we take about 3000 pounds of local honey. Uh, we liquefy it, ferment it to make mead or honey beer. Mm-hmm. Or honey wine. And then we distill it twice um, in a kind of low, slow rum process. Yep. Um, and then that basically, if you just add water to it, creates our honey shine silver. Uh, but we use that distillate structure as our base for fortifying our vermouths. Cool. Um, which is also quite lovely. You know, in the in typical Bianco or uh, Bianca vermouths, um, you will see some back sweetening mm-hmm. happening where they'll add some sugar um, or some sweetener to it. Um, it's why we used apricots uh, okay. as well as that the natural sweetness of the apricots kind of gets amplified by the honey shine uh, fortification spirit. Yeah. So we don't actually back sweeten our Bianco uh, vermouth at all. Yeah. Uh, which is also really fun. Cause again, we don't need more sugar in our diets. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're putting it with tonic, tonic already has, you know, Depending on the type of tonic you're using, has a fair amount of sugary already in it. Yeah. Um. So it's a lot of um a really fun way to be able to kind of utilize that
0: local craft approach as well. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um. You guys have anything new on the go right now that you'd like to talk about at Divine?
1: Um. Probably the next most exciting thing um coming up on the uh product side is our biggest release of Glen Sanich. Okay. Um. And. You know, Glen Saanich, our single malt whiskey, um, you know, we had, I think, about a total of about 500 bottles Mm -hmm. um, available over the last three years. Yeah. So everything that we made back in 2015, um, we had to lay down. Yeah. um, And we kind of parceled it out and said, okay, we're going to put out a one-year whiskey uh, or a a one-year glen sandwich a two-year glen sandwich and then a three-year glen sandwich but each one of those releases was between about 120 and 200 bottles maximum each time so and over that course of that time, as well, back in now it would be 2017, we had started laying down in 200 liter casks. Yeah, for our full Glen Sandich whiskey program. So, uh, June of 2020, so coming up in a couple of months, um, we will have our largest release of Glen Sandich yet. Yeah, um, which is a very exciting. You know, I've been chomping at the bit for the last three years to <laughs> say, you know can i have more of this yeah because um, it's a, a one of our most loved products you know it's been it's had a lot of hype built around it as well mm-hmm. uh jim murray and the whiskey bible gave it uh, 94 points wow um which was you know packing a punch up with the 12 and 18 and 20 year old whiskeys in it yeah in the whiskey bible um and that was only after one year in Berlin. wow good for you guys um, so yeah, it's got, um, we're very excited cause now we can put it onto liquor store shelves. We can have it readily available at bars, mm-hmm. uh, sell it at a tasting room as well. So, yep. um, yeah, I think we have two or three barrels, so we'll have anywhere between five and 600 bottles, um, which would be fantastic to have. Um, that's probably the newest thing outside of the Dutch courage, um, which is kind of just starting to gain some traction and, um, already has some good followings, especially from the bartending community here yeah. in Victoria. Yeah. um, And, um, yeah, I think we have another, the only other product I know that we're going to probably have another, it'll be a little bit of a smaller batch, maybe only 150 to 200 bottles is a uh, Slivovitz. Okay. We had made a very small, like 90 bottle run probably about a year and a half ago. And we've had some sitting in barrel now for about a year and a half, almost two years. Um, but we work closely with one of our, uh, farmers out on the Sanish Peninsula and he's Croatian and he grows a lot of plums. Okay. And every kind of, every two years, plums have a gangbuster year. Yeah. So about two years ago, um, he had an extra, I think 1100 pounds of <laughs> plums. Um, and him and his wife make homemade slivovits. Um, <laughs> But they wanted to do, because they had so much extra, yeah. um, they came up and basically were part of the process with us. So it was that's really awesome fun to be able to work really closely with them. So we barrel-aged it, and it's incredibly tasty. So that's coming out, um, I think, probably early summer. Um, okay. We'll do another release of that. Um, and then, yeah, other than that, we're just kind of ramping up for some really fun events. Um, we've got uh, Culinaire coming up, where we'll be making a couple of cocktails. Yeah. Um, we're doing a Honey Shine Silver with um, a root side, ta- uh, root side, um, uh, raspberry lemonade and a little bit of Bianca vermouth as well. Beautiful, and then we're also going to be pouring a um, Kyoto cherry rose green tea, old fashioned. All right, with uh, the Dutch Courage. Um, so we're going to be showcasing that at um, Culinaire coming up uh, at the end of March. And then uh, yeah into April we've got uh, BC distilled coming up as well, which is mm-hmm. an amazing time. Anybody that's a, a booze enthusiast or just generally wants to know what's happening in the in the world of BC distilling. Um, yep. um, Alex Hamer from BC distilled puts on um, the event every year mm-hmm. and it's um, bringing all of the BC craft distilleries mm-hmm. uh, together to um, at the Croatian Cultural Center in Vancouver. Um, and it's an amazing time for us to be able to, um, you know, all of us get to good together as a crew and um, both industry and then public um, tastings uh, happen. So yeah. people get a chance to come and see all the different things that are happening in the industry and, and what's new and exciting. And, you know, it's a, it's a really amazing event to see the fact that not only BC, but Canada, um, you know, as a whole specific to BC, I think uh, British Columbia is definitely leading the pack. Uh, Yeah. When it comes to the distilling and the expansion of the idea that we don't just have to ship in a product from some other
0: country. We can actually make it ourselves. That was one of my, uh, the main driving forces of this podcast as well is I'm so excited. Uh, the same way I was, let's say like, you know, 10 or 11 years ago when breweries were popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like when, you know, we made, and still are, don't get me wrong, like Victoria and Vancouver, like uh, in terms of beer and craft brewing, like we've made so much happen in a pretty short period of time. And um, right around the time when I stumbled across Divine, I started to uh, notice that local distillers were starting to kind of be a thing. And like we were making very good products, like between like Divine and like Sheringham and... Like whether it's like Vic Distillers or whoever, like there's a lot of fun and interesting stuff happening in the island, and like it's all for the most part, I've not had nothing but positive experiences with it.
1: Yeah, you know, again, it's I think we have 14 distilleries, maybe even more now on just on the island in the Gulf Islands, mm-hmm. um, and then yeah, over 90. You know, um, Sheringham, who you touched on, has um, one best contemporary gin in the world. Yeah, um, you know, there's a, a lot of things that are putting BC on the map. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to distilling just as a whole, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we're already even seeing it in other provinces as well. Ontario's, you know, starting to loosen up a little bit of the, the <laughs> yeah. loss. um, and you know, seeing a lot of different flavor profiles and different, you know, uh, ideas behind it where people are getting to see, you know, local Amaros. Yeah. Um, local vermouths, local uh, nocinos, chinos, um, different liqueurs, different flavored gins, different traditional gins, um, spirits made from honey, spirits made from grapes, spirits made from all these different grains. You mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of really cool terroir-driven conversations. So, um, yeah, I think, it, you know, and to your point, if you look 15 to 20 years ago at beer, when you had Labatt and Budweiser. Yeah. Right. And we didn't have anything outside of kind of the four major brands. Yeah. And none of them were made locally. No. Except maybe Lucky. And that was only for a very <laughs> short period Yeah, of um, But, you know, we didn't see the wide variety. And then all of a sudden it just exploded mm-hmm. and we now have what probably 250 300 crafty, uh craft <laughs> yeah in british columbia yeah um and just the movement as a whole and that's and in, in, you know and you know if you think that's probably started 20 years ago you know yeah if you think about phillips and maddie phillips running around with <laughs> yeah uh, blue buck yeah out of his little car or his little truck yeah that was 20 years ago i think probably isn't that what it started blue truck Hey, he called a blue truck, and somebody. And had then there was
0: a there was a legal issue
1: with that. Yeah, because the red truck. Uh, yeah. Pottery. And so he had to come up with a different name, and he put it out to all of Victoria to say, "Hey, we need a new name." Yeah. And and it stuck, right? Yeah. And you know, you think about the size of Phillips now, and he's got a yeah. malting facility, and you know, and that's a very cool thing is that when we go to look back 15 years from now, mm-hmm. and say, "Holy shit," you know. Remember that podcast, or to remember that <laughs> tasting room experience you remember yeah that those cocktails that were being made with these different spirits and those things, and you know we've gone from you know, if you think about five years ago, or right, even ten years ago, yeah, um there was a, I think four distilleries in all of British Columbia, yeah, and none of them were craft, they were <laughs> all commercial, yeah, and now we see over ninety mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's an amazing movement that's happening and it's building the culture, the education, the conversation, you know, and, and, um, yeah, it's just making people more informed, Mm -hmm. which I think is incredible because, um, if we start to change the way that we drink, we can start to enjoy things on a different level. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Nah, you know, I think that uh, pretty much wraps it up, whether gin, vermouth, you know, yeah. Divine as a whole. And yeah, if anybody's ever interested, our tasting room's open 12 to 5 Thursday through Sunday. Yeah. And um, in the summertime, I think as of May, we'll be open seven days a week. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, if, if you haven't come up and experienced our view um, or our tasting room, uh, please do. It'll knock your socks off. Yeah, a
0: beautiful. It's, it's very beautiful up there. Plus, I quite enjoy the the electronic gate. Makes me feel like I'm entering Wayne <laughs> Manor to go see, <laughs> you know. It's true, yeah, I'm, yeah. Go, I'm gonna go visit Bruce Wayne or something.
1: We do have probably one of the uh, the best driveways uh, possible, especially yeah. with the view on your left and, and um all of the things that are growing around there and the beehives and the grapes and yeah, there's there's an amazing amount of things happening up there and um, the property is stunning and um, our tasting room experience is definitely one not to miss.
0: Yeah, it, it changed my views on alcohol. Oh, amazing. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your time. appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. Cheers. Thanks, Barry.
0: And that is episode two. Time to be divine with Brad Sissons. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Hope you learned some shit. And if we didn't get the point across, I highly recommend you go seek out all of Divine's products, their wines their spirits and their goddamn vermouths they are absolutely delicious and as always music by marlon keenan i will be leaving the uh links in the description and you know what i suggest you listen to this episode go grab yourself some divine products and get yourself good and drunk at noon i hope you guys enjoyed the show